Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of From My Point of View. A fun show this week. We have Shaq and Gobert going back and forth to each other, which is something that I've been laughing about for probably 24 hours straight now. Um, Fox Sports giving Brady a mega deal to be their lead NFL analyst. Islanders firing Barry Trotz in a surprising move. I don't think anyone really expected something like that to come uh, from the Islanders. Rangers lost. They, I mean, they got the they got the crap beaten out of them. Absolutely no shade to Igor she- Igor Shesterkin at all. Shesterkin, excuse me. I always I think I I had it in my head that it's Shesterkin. Shesterkin. Uh I mean he's he's like the he's the best goaltender in hockey. He was the entire year. And the defense has been not great for the Rangers. So they go down 3-1 going back to Madison Square Garden. Uh Nestor Cortez nearly has a no-hitter. The Yankees and Mets are the first teams to 20 wins. Um, and a couple other baseball related things. Then we have MVP, Coach of the Year, the NBA playoffs, the games from uh, yesterday, the Warriors somehow winning that game against the Grizzlies when they didn't have John Morant. And uh, what's up with Chris Paul, the Suns? Break that down. My predictions for the rest of the series because uh, by the time next week rolls around and we get this podcast out again, it's going to be the conference finals, and we will have our four remaining teams. So to start, this thing with Shaq and Gobert, this will be quick. I just thought it was so hilarious that it needs to be talked about. So basically on uh, Shaq's podcast, big podcast with Shaq, uh, he, they, was, they were talking about rumors of Gobert and, and Mitchell possibly splitting up and all that. Um, and here's, here's what Shaq had to say. I'll play like pretty much the entire clip for you. So what's going on in Utah? What's going on is what I told y'all three years ago. Donovan ain't that good, and the Utah Jazz ain't that good. Let's just say it. You want to be good or you want to be great? Whichever one you want, let me know. But, you know, Rudy's a great player, fine defensive player, but he offers nothing on the offensive end. Like, he has no post moves, you know, like... I think Rudy Gerber can hold you to, like, 12 points. Yeah, in the first three minutes. And that that's pretty much the <laughs> that's the conversation. Um, first of all, Shaq backing me up on my point of the Utah Jazz. They're flat out just not that good. Donovan Mitchell's not that good, and Rudy Gobert stinks. Uh, great defensive player offers pretty much nothing once you get to the playoffs. So the fact that the Jazz are locked in, uh, unless they could somehow trade him with that massive contract into his mid thirties, they're gonna be paying him over forty million dollars, is hilarious. Uh, Donovan Mitchell, he wants to come to the Knicks. You know, I'm not going to say no, uh, but he definitely, I've made my stance on Donovan Mitchell pretty clear. I don't think he's that good, but I also think that he's asked to do entirely too much with the Utah Jazz just because they are not a championship constructed team. They're just not. And it was so hilarious to think, and Rudy Gobert ended up responding because this was posted on Instagram. And Rudy Gobert ended up responding saying, I'd lock his ass up, which is so funny. I'm not even sure Rudy Gobert totally believed, which is like, okay, defend yourself, talk your shit. That's fine. But like, realistically, there, I, I really don't think there's any way that even Rudy Gobert believes that he could lock Shaq's ass up. I, he had David Robinson in a blender. Uh, he was bullying Hakeem Olajuwon, although Hakeem also bullied Shaq. But like he, he was going after everyone, right? There wasn't anyone that could guard Shaq one-on-one. And he played in an era where the beginning of it was really you couldn't play zone. I think zone was actually, it wasn't legal for the first part of Shaq's career. So basically he was getting, uh, with his time in the, with the Magic and his time in the early part with the Lakers, or really his entire run with the Lakers, um, he was getting either single teamed where he put whoever was guarding him in the basket or he was getting double teamed, in which case you had Penny Hardaway or like Kobe Bryant wide open that he was able to pass it to. So it, it just, it, it, he was an unstoppable force. And even when he got to Miami, he wasn't the same Shaquille O'Neal, but he was still good enough to be the number two on a championship run. Uh, and he really, you can argue he was probably the number one 
with D Wade until D Wade ascended during that finals run. Uh, and that's that's pretty much all there is to it. Uh, like Shaq went on to say that uh, he's like Rudy might hold me to twelve points, uh, but then he's gonna foul out. <laughs> which is also true. Shaq, he would probably just do hack Shaq and just try and stop uh, Shaquille O'Neal because that's pretty much what anyone resorted to. Uh, it, it's impossible. Like, Shaquille O'Neal is, in my opinion, the single most dominant player in basketball history. So, you know, little Rudy Gobert isn't going to be able to stop Shaquille O'Neal for nothing. Like, not even a little bit. I completely agree with Shaq, too. And, and I always think these things are kind of silly, um, but when you try and actually make like a point to be like, well, Gobert is a three-time defensive MVP, uh, defensive player of the year, I should say, and you know he he has a, a strong reputation as a shot blocker and, and a great defender. But if you look around the league right now, what true great bigs bigs are there? Jokic, sure, but he's not anything like Shaq. He's has finesse, he has a mid-range game, uh, he's an excellent passer, but he's not a dominant force, right? Joel Embiid is the most dominant big man that we have in terms of skill and raw physical strength combined. Embiid is incredible in that regard. Uh, and we can't really assess how he how Gobert goes up against someone like him because they play twice a year. So it, it's not really a great sample size. Uh, some more housekeeping. Fox Sports dishing out the bag to Tom Brady. Effective when he retires. So when Brady decides to finally hang it up, whether it's the end of this year or he plays for another two years, like however long it is, uh, Fox Sports has a 10-year... $375 million deal to have Tom Brady be the lead NFL analyst for Fox Sports. Now, I don't know if this means he's going to be calling games. I would assume he'll be on like the national game of the week, like that Joe Buck and Troy Aikman did, which means if it's like Kevin Burkhart and Tom Brady, that's it's pretty, pretty awesome. That would be pretty cool. Uh, I, I I don't think they're going to be paying him, you know, that much money per year for being a studio guy. Like, they're going to have him on site calling the games like Tony Romo, like Troy Aikman, uh, and these other ex-NFL players that are getting a large chunk of money to be analysts. Now, this average salary more than doubles Tony Romo from CBS and Troy Aikman from ESPN, the average salary that they make, it almost doubles theirs. And Tom Brady is easily, I mean, he's the greatest football player of all time. So he's the most prolific athlete turned broadcaster slash analyst that we have ever seen. So for Fox to shell out that kind of cash, totally understandable. Uh, I can already tell you Brady is going to be unbelievable. Uh, Number one, his football IQ is obviously through the fucking roof. And he's also, like, pretty funny and charismatic. Uh, he, and we have seen that over the course of the past few years. Specifically when he came to Tampa Bay, he's really sprouted out uh, from his, his shell that we had in New England where it was really... You know, his last year in New England, he was posting, you know... Uh, the the post game wins and stuff and and the videos with Gronk that he would post on Twitter, and that was his last like two years in New England. He really started to branch out like that on social media and stuff, specifically Twitter. Um, and then now when he's with the Bucks, he's completely free of like the Patriots, Bill Belichick, and obviously that had something to do with it. But I also think it had a little bit to do with him loosening up a little bit. You know, because for years it was all business all the time. And I think even personally, he was like, well, I'm at a point right now where I'm so good and my team, I know my team is so good that I can, you know, he, he can loosen up a little bit 
and he's already proven himself time and time and time and time again, and is a seven-time champion, that he he can loosen up a little bit, you know? And, and we've definitely seen that from him, so I'm excited to see Brady whenever he does decide to hang it up. I would assume this is his last year. I would safely assume this is his last year, and immediately he jumps into being an analyst with Fox. Now, generally, it probably would be better if he cooled off for a couple years before jumping into being an analyst, because then he's just going to be, like, right from the field to the booth is, it's a bit of a jump. I don't think even Tony Romo did that. Uh, I think it was at least one or two years Tony Romo was retired before CBS bagged him to be uh, one of their top guys. But regardless, a monster, like, this is baseball money. Right, this is Fernando Tatis, Francisco Lindor kind of money, where he's getting a ten-year, three hundred seventy-five million dollar contract, and CBS really started this. I think I talked about it a little bit with Joe Buck and Troy Aikman how they left Fox Sports to go to ESPN, and they got over ten million dollars each to call essentially one game a week, and there's stipulations in their contracts about. They say ESPN plus content, but no one really gives a crap about that. It's, you're essentially being paid to call one game a week, whereas Joe Buck with Fox was getting paid less and asked to do pretty much everything. Game of the week, World Series, uh, Thursday night football, like he was doing a lot, especially during October when the MLB playoffs were on. It, it was a lot for him. And now he's kind of saying... I'm I'm cool. I'm cooling off. I'm passing the rain, reins, essentially, right? He leaves Fox Sports. Kevin Burkhart gets a huge promotion. And he goes to ESPN with Troy Aikman, who so now he doesn't have to like form a new relationship and chemistry on air with someone else. He has Troy Aikman, the guy that he's been doing this for years with. Uh, and he's at ESPN. But now Fox, they promote Kevin Burkhart and they use all that money they saved from paying Troy Aikman. And Joe Buck, and they give it to Tom Brady, essentially. And CBS really did create a market by giving Tony Romo so much money to come in. Uh, Now all these ex-athletes, like, if you're known for having a tremendous IQ in your sport, you're articulate and well-spoken, you're going to be a guy that is highly sought after by these media companies to come in and talk about your sport. And it, it, it's opened up another avenue for a lot of these ex-athletes where if you're a play-by-play guy, an aspiring play-by-play guy, color commentary doesn't exist anymore for the average Joe. Years ago, it was everyone in the booth went to school and, and honed their craft to be a play-by-play color guy. Um, I know Michael Kay, like he started along in the booth with TV with John Sterling as the play-by-play guy, and he was the color guy. And they switch on and off every once in a while, but like they really did start there and it, it's different now. And it, it, You essentially can only be a, a play-by-play guy because all the color commentators in the booth are ex-athletes. Uh, whether there's a second chair or a third chair, three-guy booth, um, anyone outside of the play-by-play guys, even in studio now, you have the host and then three to four ex-athletes as the analysts. So there's not much, if you're aspiring to be something like that, it's certainly tough um, to, to pave your way in that landscape nowadays. Uh, I've kind of pivoted from that. <laughs> so I'm a little, not really too stressed out about it because I pivoted more to like doing this and wanting to be a talk show host and stuff like that rather than on television. But you know, whatever. Uh, in the NHL, In a shocking move, the Islanders announced that they have parted ways with Barry Trotz. A shocking move, like I said, for many reasons. Most notably, uh, the fact that just two, two of the past three years, the Islanders have been in the conference finals. So, I I don't really understand like they lost to the Tampa Bay Lightning two years in a row in the conference finals, and the and the Lightning went on to win the Stanley Cup. Both years in a row. So you're losing in the, in the conference finals to your inevi- to the eventual winner of the Stanley Cup. It, it's nothing to really 
be upset about. Obviously, it's heartbreaking, but it is what it is, right? It's not like you lost to the Lightning and then they got trounced in the in the Stanley Cup by someone else. So it, it's confusing. Like, yeah, this year for the Islanders was very underwhelming. Like, just a flat-out disappointment. There's no sugarcoating that. Like I said, you get to the to back-to-back conference finals uh, in you know two years in a row, and then you miss the playoffs entirely the next year. For sure, a disappointment, and not what a lot of people were expecting, and obviously not what the front office was expecting. But to part ways with a guy that has, as far as I've been a sports fan, I've never been a huge hockey guy, but the Islanders have always sucked for the most part. Like growing up, they were never really that good. There was a few years here and there where they were like better than sometimes, but for the most part, a majority of the time, it's kind of like the Mets. They've sucked. And like uh, like I said, the Mets had a, a few years where they were good, a few years where they were really good, and other years where they were just flat out bad. Uh, and, and the Islanders have more or less been the same way. I don't understand the move. I really don't. To put it in perspective, like the NBA, I can't even I can't even use the NBA as an example because it's just. The players are so dominant in that sport, but baseball, right? It's it would be like the Tampa Bay Rays. So the Tampa Bay Rays got to the World Series and lost to the Dodgers, and then the next year got to the ALCS and lost to the Astros. It would be like that happening, and then the Rays firing Kevin Cash. That would make absolutely no sense, right? Because the Rays, just they just had tremendous success. They've been consistently one of the best teams over the past like three, four, five years. And they got deep playoff runs two years in a row. Why would you fire your manager? That wouldn't make any sense. It's the same thing here. Like you've had two of the most successful years for the Islanders in the past 30 years? Not even at the turn of the century, like way before that. When was the last time the Islanders got to a Stanley Cup final? I'll tell you when. 1984, when they lost in the Stanley Cup after winning four in a row. Obviously, they're very famous for winning in 80, 80, 81, 82, and 83. And then they lost in 84. And then it's just been a decline since. Uh, like I said, let's let's go back 30 years, okay? 1992. And you know what? Not because it doesn't really matter at all. We'll start from 1990, okay? 1990, lost first round. Missed playoffs, missed playoffs. Lost conference finals, lost first round. From 1995 to 2001, they missed the playoffs entirely. Then three years in a row, 02, 03, 04, they lost in the first round, missed the playoffs, lost in the first round, 09 to 2012, or 08 to 2012, they've missed the playoffs, lost first round, missed playoffs, lost first round, lost conference semifinals, missed playoffs, missed playoffs, lost conference semifinals, lost conference finals, lost conference finals, missed playoffs. So, easily... The past two seasons have been the most successful for the Islanders in the past 32 years, with the exception of 1993. When oh no 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 sorry sorry sorry, I guess if you want to count 2016 and 2019, they were pretty good. They lost in the conference semifinals, uh, but you only won one round of the playoffs, so it's really not that impressive. But uh, everything else, you're either lost in the first round. Or you missed the playoffs entirely for the past 32 years, with the exception of 1993, when you got got to the conference finals and lost. Uh, So, not a whole lot of success. And they've been really good for the past two years. Like, yeah, you missed the playoffs, but firing your head coach, like, that's not not the move. Um, All of hockey Twitter was 
I think, pretty much taken aback and surprised by this. Um, I know a few Islanders fans who were who were not particularly happy about this move. So shocking to say the least. But as for the Rangers, it's not going much better for them. Uh, after a fantastic year, they currently find themselves down three to one to the Pittsburgh Penguins, and. It's been a very weird series for the Rangers. So they lose game one in triple overtime. They win game two in pretty dominant fashion. Then they lose game three in a bizarre game where they trailed four to one, tied it up, and then ended up losing seven to four. Uh, There were a couple of empty net goals there at the end. That's why the score got a little bit inflated. It was really five four. But Losing a weird game like that, and then they come out again and get trounced in Pittsburgh, flat out dominated, seven to two. Not good. Igor Shosturkin, um, not. I would. I think it's pretty unanimous that most people are not blaming Igor for the Rangers' poor defensive performance. Uh, the defense has been Swiss cheese. There have been a lot of pucks deflected in front of the net. And personally, when I was watching the game, the last game that they played, they were not aggressive at all offensively. Like, they just were not shooting the puck. Um, On the MSG broadcast, I know Sam Rosen, and I think the the one who was doing it with him was Steve Valiquette. Um, And he was saying, just put the puck in front of the net and things happen. because. One of the two Rangers goals, so the Rangers scored first in the game to lead 1-0, and their only other goal came off a deflection, I don't remember who it was, the back of their skate, there was a puck shot through to the front of the crease, Uh, Domingue didn't touch it, and it went off the back of the defender that was in front of him, skate, the heel of his skate, and it bounced into the net, and it was a goal, and Valaket was saying, just put, in the playoffs, you just, if, if your offense isn't flowing right, just get the puck on, on, on the net. Just get it in front of the net. Things happen in front of the net in playoff hockey. It's a wild freaking sport. Deflections, rebounds, ricochets, whatever. Like, you just get lucky sometimes. So, with the Penguins, a lot of their goals have been that. There haven't been nearly any goals where it's just straight up like, I'm going to deke out Igor and send it over his shoulder, or I'm going to like have a slap shot that just gets ripped into the top shelf. They None of that has really happened to Igor. A lot of them are just pucks that the Penguins get in front of the net and deflect, and they get by Igor, and that's what happens. And it, it, it's... I've loosely been following the Rangers this year. I'm not going to say I'm like a super fan by any stretch of the imagination. Like, not even close. Uh, but, you know, I'm rooting for them. And I have a rooting interest in them. And just as little as I know about hockey, it's like, even I know that that it's frustrating to watch to see what is happening. And a majority of those goals happened in the second period. And it was just like one after another after another. There was a minute left in the second period. I looked down at my phone and looked back up 20 seconds later and the Penguins had another goal before the period ended. It, It was just brutal, brutal, brutal defense by the Rangers. Now they go back to MSG. They're down, they're down 3-1 to win three games against Sidney Crosby and the Pittsburgh Penguins. I mean, like I know Crosby's not what he used to be, but he they're still a very good team, obviously. And the way it's been going, um, it, it's been tough. Uh, Rangers head coach Gerard Gallant already came out. Gallant? Gallant? I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but either way. Uh, <laughs> he came, like I said, I'm, I'm still learning especially with pronunciations of a lot of these names. He already came out and said that Igor's going to be in, in net for Game 5 uh, and that he is, quote, the best goaltender in hockey. So obviously he's going to be in there. But I'm sure the question that was posed was, is Gorgiev going to be in there? Because the past two games they've had to take out Shesterkin and put Gorgiev in. Now, I don't think Shesterkin's been his best, but I mean, at the, at the very least... He hasn't been getting any help. His defense has been doing him no favors. Penguins are just putting pucks on the net and things are going in. It's just, it is what it is. Ideally, the Rangers get lucky. 
I, I guess, I, how, is the, how is the playoff formatting in the NHL? Do the Rangers now get, let me check, do the Rangers now get a couple of games uh, at home? They get, when you're listening to this, they'll be playing that night, Wednesday night, and then they play again at Friday if they win, game six would be in Pittsburgh. So they do not get back-to-back games here. It is the same as the NHL, where it's 2-2-1-1-1. That's brutal. But, you know, this this Rangers team's been incredible all year. I I wouldn't put it past them to rally the troops and and rattle off three straight wins. So uh, I'm rooting for them, obviously. But uh, it's a tall, tall task, no doubt. For baseball, uh, the Yankees and Mets, the first two NL, the first team overall to reach 21 is is the New York Mets. Uh, The second team is the New York Yankees, first team in the AL, uh, and the Mets, first team in the NL, obviously. So, fantastic start to the season for both squads. Um, Of note, Nestor Cortez has a sub 1-5 ERA and took a no-hitter into the eighth inning yesterday, or I guess Monday, if you want to talk about that. Uh, But it was phenomenal. I mean, like, a masterful performance from Nestor Cortez. He he walked four, struck out 11, and his previous start against the Blue Jays, he suffered a little bit of a control issue, powered through, had a a quality start. Um, but overall, like it was one of his weaker outings in recent memory, but he got right back to it against the Texas Rangers. And unfortunately the offense didn't really get any runs. So he ended up getting the no decision, uh, cause he got pulled after recording one out in the eighth inning. The no hitter was broken up with a single up the middle and Boone took him out. He had like 106 pitches or something like that at that point. So the right move by Boone, managed it perfectly, let him go. As soon as he got the first hit off of him, they yanked him. Uh, and unfortunately, again, the game was tied. So he got the no hit. He got the uh, no decision, couldn't get the win. I think he's only like one and one on the year for as well as he's pitched. He's, he's one and one. So the ERA obviously is spectacular, and he's been the Yankees' most consistent pitcher, really. I mean, Jordan Montgomery has been outstanding. Garrett Cole has had, I think, three starts in a row now where he's been pretty dominant, like looking like the ace that the Yankees need him to be. Sever- I'm recording this, and Severino's pitching tonight against the Blue Jays, another set against the Blue Jays. Um, so Sevy's going. He's been good. Uh, the starting pitching in general for both teams has been great. That's really been the key to their successes. The Yankees bullpen has been uh, the best in baseball, as everyone predicted. And the Mets, worth noting, this past week, they had a win against the Philadelphia Phillies where they scored seven runs in the top of the ninth when they were down 7-1, to one, and they scored seven runs in the top of the ninth to win it 8 to seven, one of the most unreal wins I've ever seen. And then the Indians went and had almost equally a huge win uh, against the Chicago White Sox. They came all the way back. Josh Naylor had, I think, eight RBIs after the eighth inning. Just a absolutely ridiculous game. From the uh, the Indi- not the Indians. Excuse me if I said the Indians before. Everyone gets one. That's my fault. Hand up. I'll, I'll wear that. That's my bad. It's gonna take a little get getting used to. Still, the Guardians had an unbelievable win against the White Sox, and the White Sox continue to struggle. I don't like Liam Hendricks. I never liked Liam Hendricks. I remember in the Field of Dreams game, the with the Yankees, I was like, we are gonna win this game against Liam Hendricks, and. We would have had, I think, Chapman come in, and, and I'm pretty sure it was Chapman. Why wouldn't it be Chapman? He came in and left a hanging slider to Tim, Tim Anderson, I think it was uh, the hanging slider. I know it was Tim Anderson. So, never liked Liam Hendricks. Uh, 
yeah, I, I, I mean, the White Sox, like I said, they've been struggling. And speaking of the AL Central, just a hand up. I'm already ready to admit I was wrong. The Tigers. I said the Tigers were a team to watch, to look out for. They have a lot of young talent, and they have some, some nice veterans on that squad. They went, I think, four straight games without scoring a run. They, last time I checked, they exploded a little bit against the Athletics in a doubleheader that they had today where they were winning 6 nothing. Uh, but before that, huge, big run drought where just were not able to score. They got hosed by whoever the home plate umpire was the other day. And they've been struggling. I think they're 8-20. and 20, And uh, as of May 10th, 2022, they were 8-20. and 20. Not great. I'm kind of ready to throw my hand up and say I was wrong about the Tigers. They're probably just going to be mediocre at best, like a 500 team at best this year. They're already 12 games in the hole, so that's not good. Uh, but yeah, at best, a 500 team. Not quite there yet. Still got to develop and add some other pieces there. That's your baseball update. Uh, and now we get back into the crux of it. The NBA playoffs. Uh, quickly before that, obviously, Monty Williams named Coach of the Year, rightfully so. He led the Suns to the best record in the NBA. Um, you could have argued that he should have won it last year had the Knicks not made the resurgence of a year that they did under Tom Thibodeau. Obviously, this year, huge disappointment um, in terms of last year with the Knicks, but Monty Williams improved. With the Suns, I think they were the two seed last year, right? Didn't Utah have the one seed last year? Pretty sure. Ridiculous. But yeah, best record in the West, number one seed by a large margin. Uh, Best overall record in the NBA by, I think, eight games or something crazy like that. So they dominated in the regular season. Monty Williams, uh, glad that he got the Coach of the Year award because if he didn't get it this year, he probably would not have gotten one, which is really sad to say. Um, but we don't have to think like that because he did get one. And like I said, rightfully so. Very hop, very happy for Monty Williams. And the NBA MVP for the second year in a row, Nikola Jokic. Now, this is causing some big-time controversy uh, in the NBA fandom. You have people on one hand who are pretty much analytic nerds and, you know, VORP is like the best metric or whatever. They are, and Nikola Jokic leads and or is like top five or top three in pretty much every category and every saber metric. Uh, he, he's the numbers for him certainly justify the fact that he should have been MVP when you just look at numbers and analytics and all that. But most people, including myself, think that it should have been Joel Embiid. Now, my, my argument for Embiid is I'm huge on the eye test. Like, I really am. And Joel Embiid is like the most dominant big man that you have in the NBA. He averaged 30. I think he won the scoring title this year. Uh, great rebounder. Great defender. Like, he is un. Believable, and I just I don't think Nikola Jokic deserved to be a back-to-back NBA MVP, and it is literally as simple and shallow as the fact that look at the list of NBA MVPs. The only one on that list that sticks out like a sore thumb is Steve Nash, and now in the history of basketball, Jokic will probably end up being the same because. Yes, he's a two-time MVP, but is he going to go down with the great, the other greats that have won? Like, is he Giannis? No. Like, Giannis is a dominant force and rightfully deserved back-to-back MVPs. But Jokic, I, I, it just doesn't feel like he, does, he is like that kind of player. And I'm not trying to disrespect him at all. I think he's fantastic. I just think to give him back-to-back MVPs like, that's a right reserved for few. And I just don't think he belongs in that same conversation. And we all know Steve Nash. Like, we all know he was the black sheep. 
like the big ele- the big elephant in the room uh, in terms of winning back-to-back MVPs. One of those MVPs should have went to Kobe. One of them probably should have went to LeBron or someone else. Like there are a slew of candidates that you could have selected to win MVP in both of those seasons. Um, and you know what? One of those reasons why he won MVP is because his team was the, I believe it was the number one seed, but I believe he led the Suns to the best record in the NBA as well. Like he had, he got to the Suns and just had a huge turnaround impact for them. And that used to mean something. Your team winning used to mean something for the NBA MVP. And now it means nothing. So it's like Jokic, the playoffs don't count. And they shouldn't count. But the fact that Jokic is on like the fifth seeded Nuggets and I think they were what, the fourth seed last year too? They never had the best record in the league. They were never a one seed. And quite frankly, his numbers are pretty inflated because Jamal Murray's out. So, I mean, I understand he's really good, but it's like your team's not the best. I kind of miss the days where winning factored into it because there's just no way the back-to-back MVP should be on a team that's as mediocre as the Nuggets. It, there's just, there's no, there's no reason for that, man. You want to give him into the first time, okay. Like, I totally understand giving him one MVP. He absolutely deserved it. But there's a rarity that comes with back-to-back MVPs. And I just don't think Jokic deserved two when Joel Embiid doesn't even have one. Embiid absolutely deserved it this year. And I, like I said, there's nerds out there that are just going to like chew your ear off with nothing but like meaning with nothing but numbers that mean absolutely nothing to me. I don't care about VORP or any other of those stupid analytics that take into account all these different things. When I look at these guys play, when I looked at everyone play, the top three guys that they had as finalists, Jokic, Embiid, and Giannis. Is Giannis going to get three in a row? No. Joel Embiid deserved it. Flat out. Like, he was the most dominant player in the NBA this year. In my humble opinion. He stayed healthy, relatively. He was consistent. And he, he, I think he was just pretty clear-cut the best player in the NBA. Like, no disrespect to Jokic, but he just... He does, I, I, just, I just don't think they should have given him back-to-back MVPs. I think it's, I think it's pretty whack, actually. All right, let's get to the games. Monday night, we had Celtics-Bucks game four. The series is now tied 2-2. Two to two, A game where it looked like the Bucks were going to run away with it. They had several opportunities to. But Jason Tatum and Al Horford... Locking it down for the Celtics. Both of them dropped 30 points. And they had a pretty impressive comeback against the Milwaukee Bucks. Like I said, Giannis was on one yet again. And it certainly looked like the the Bucks were going to run away with it. And they just never could. The Celtics kept clawing the way back, staying within striking distance. And then they absolutely went and dominated the fourth quarter. 43 to 28 they outscored the Bucks in the fourth. Jason Tatum, huge dagger three, uh, and they end up winning 116 to 108. Very, very, very impressive win in Milwaukee to tie up the series two to two when they head back to Boston and play game five on Wednesday night. By the time you're listening to this, uh, they will have game five then. Uh, the other game on Monday, Grizzlies, Warriors, maybe the first half of that game might have been the worst half of playoff basketball I have ever watched in my entire life. No exaggeration. Uh, it, it, was, it was really, really, truly awful. Everyone was missing shots on both sides. 
a ton of turnovers for the Warriors, just sloppy basketball. The Warriors had 38 points at halftime. The only one who hit a three-pointer in the first half was Otto Porter. He's the only one who shot well from three. He was 4-6. Jordan Poole just decided to not shoot the basketball in this game. He was 4-12, 0-3 from three. Uh, he just kept, every time he touched the ball, he would pump fake and drive and kick every single time. Most of his points were on fast breaks. I don't really know what was going on with him. Clay Thompson, uh, he has been way up and down this playoffs. He either is an absolute flamethrower or he struggles heavily. 6-20, 0-7 from 3 for Clay Thompson, just 14 points. Truly a ba- uh, an abysmal game for Clay Thompson. The only one who got it going, Wiggins held it down. Otto Porter was huge off the bench. And then, of course, Steph Curry uh, in the second half decided to actually start playing basketball. Um, and he ended up with 32 points on 10 of 25, 4 of 14 from three. So, not exactly the best shooting splits, but enough to get the Warriors over the hump. I cannot emphasize how much they struggled in this game. I give a lot of credit to the Grizzlies. They played great defense. Um, they're actually a much, much, much better. This shouldn't come as a shock to people, but they are a much, much better defensive team when John Morant is not on the court. Uh, but obviously they suffer immensely offensively. But Jaron Jackson had a good game, man. He he was trying to to will that team to victory. 21 points. Uh, Tyus Jones in John Morant's stead, 19 points. Uh, Kyle Anderson was 7 of 8 off the bench in his 23 minutes. He scored 17 points. Dylan Brooks is dog water, man. I, 5 of 19 shooting, 12 points. He stinks. He, he is flat out bad. Steven Adams had 10 points and 15 boards playing in 27 minutes. Um, Desmond Bain, in a night where they really needed him to step up scoring-wise, he just had 8 points on 3 of 8 shooting. 2 of 4 from 3 in 37 minutes. So not the offensive output that they needed. Obviously, they missed John Moran and his explosiveness to get to the rim and create open looks for other people. Uh, but they were leading for 46 and a half minutes of this game. Like, the the Warriors only took the lead with around two minutes left in the game. So it, it was... A t- that's, that's a brutal loss because you're staring 3-1 in the face. Um, you've been leading the entire way. The Warriors are just... They're not on tonight. Nothing is falling. Um, and you just simply cannot muster up enough offense to pull away and get a comfortable lead. The Warriors, they left him in striking distance and Steph Curry decided to do what Steph Curry does. And then he was clutch at the free throw line as well. So a game that the Warriors absolutely should not have won. If John Morant was playing in this game, they would have lost by 30. It would have been an absolute massacre. Uh, Luckily for them, John Morant was not in this game. So it, it was... Really ugly. Again, cannot just a really uninspired, unemotional playoff basketball game. This is game four, right? This is like the middle of the series. Um, but it was just so uninteresting. Uh, but as for the series as a whole, Warriors go up 3 1. They avoid a disastrous loss at home. To the John Morantless Grizzlies. They win 101 98. Again, they play the nightcap 9 30 on Wednesday today, if you're listening to this, and they are at Memphis. Now, for now, the day that I'm recording, here are my predictions that are always a risk for me as a analyst or, or aspiring analyst. Uh, my picks for Tuesday's games. You will be this will be uploaded on Wednesday, so I will not be able to go back and change this if I am wrong. My picks. Sixers at the Heat. Um I am going to go with Miami to win their game at home. Uh, I think this game has a chance to go 7. In fact, I would be 
very surprised if it doesn't go seven. Uh, Danny Green's been going nuclear for the 76ers. He's had two fantastic games in a row for Philadelphia to really, really help them offensively because Joel Embiid has been obviously in some pain. But in the first two games after going two of six from the field, one of five from three, and one of ten from the field, one of nine from three, he goes seven to nine and then four of six, three of four. Um, from three in the last game. 21 points in game three, 11 in game two, but some much-needed three-point shooting from Danny Green because, uh, again, he's been struggling, but he, he's been a, a huge uh, addition, in that, like a huge contribution, I should say, to that Sixers lineup. Jimmy Butler's been going off as well, but the Sixers have just been beating them in the past two games, so no fault to Jimmy Butler. But now, home in Miami, I have a feeling this is just going to go seven. So, uh, I I just think Embiid's health is going to get the best of the Sixers. I really do. And Harden's inconsistency. Harden popped off for 30 last game, uh, which is something that he hasn't done, I think, since he's been in a Sixers uniform. But he was finally able to shoot efficiently from three. He had 31, seven, and nine. I don't know how much you can rely on that kind of James Harden to show up every night. I, I really don't. And like I said, I think Embiid's health is really going to get the best of him. And it might end up really being a problem for Philadelphia. So I'll say Heat in seven. Um, we'll find out if I'm right next week. And then Mavericks and Suns play tonight. Suns in six. I've never been more sure about anything in my life. The Suns win tonight in dominant fashion, and then they go to Dallas and they also win in dominant fashion. It's over. Suns win, and they go on to play the Warriors in the conference finals. That's the prediction. That's what's going to happen. I'm riding with my Suns, no doubt. But it has been an incredibly weird series for Chris Paul. Uh, especially these last two games, or I should say specifically these last two games in Dallas. He has just been all over the place. He fouled out in game four, uh, and the Suns still almost won. But he has just been playing really sloppy. He had a ton of turnovers in game three, and then he fouls out in game four. It's just really uncharacteristic basketball from Chris Paul. I think now they're back in Phoenix. They've had a few, a couple days rest. This is the time to now gear up and, and get locked back in if you're Chris Paul. And I think we're definitely going to see that tonight. Um, we're going to see him back to his normal self. I don't think we should see him try and draw less of those ticky-tack fouls. There's been a lot of flopping in these playoffs and a lot of offensive fouls called because of that flopping. And I think Chris Paul, like, he tried to do the thing with Jalen Brunson where he backs up into him and has him trip over him, and they usually call it a defensive foul. They called it an offensive foul because it is an offensive foul. Chris Paul knew it. He wasn't arguing. He wasn't upset. He wasn't yelling. Really a lack of emotion the past two days from Chris Paul, or the past two games from Chris Paul. Again, very uncharacteristic of him in his play style and his attitude. It, it just seems like something was off with him mentally, really. So ideally, he, he kind of locked himself back in. And we see more of the Chris Paul that we saw in the latter half of the New Orleans series in the beginning of this series as well. Booker's been fantastic. No complaints there. DeAndre Ayton needs to find his nuts, though. Like. He is really just, he, mental midget is a very, like, mean thing to say about someone, but he definitely shrinks in, like, bigger moments when his team needs him. Like, you are going up against Bertans and Maxi Kleba. You should be dominating these dudes. And he's just, he's just not. Like, he, he just, he's not crashing boards. His, rebu- his rebounding numbers are just flat out not good. And they should be. Now, he's never been like a huge rebounding center, which is ridiculous because he's seven feet tall. But like, he had a game, game two, they won, but he had three rebounds. 
He had 16 11 and 14 and 11 in the two losses at Dallas. And it's just not nearly enough. The 11 rebounds I can live with. But you got to get up to 20 points, 20 plus points. You, you're capable of that. He has great touch. He has a mid range. Uh, he just. He doesn't exert his physicality enough. And I don't know if it's just non-existent, like if he's just simply not strong enough, or he just isn't aggressive enough to like assert himself against these guys that are not big post-presence guys. They're not. They're three-point shooters. He, he's got to figure it out. The Suns need more from DeAndre Ayton. And they just, they need to stop fouling. Uh, I, a lot of bullshit foul calls that have been called on them, no doubt. But they've also been a little bit sloppy. It's been very... The two games in Dallas were not only uncharacteristic games from Chris Paul, but from the Suns as a whole. Devin Booker is really the only one who played pretty well. Although last game, or two games ago, he shot really well and then just stopped shooting. Started the game with... Opened the game with two three-pointers. Back-to-back possessions. Boom, boom. Six points immediately. And then just stopped shooting. He ended with six of 13, four six from three, and like 16 points. I don't know what happened. Those are great shooting splits. He just stopped shooting. A bizarre game. Just a very weird series in Dallas for the Suns. But now they're back home. Hopefully they got their shit together. And I think they're going to rattle off two wins in a row here take the series in six games and go on to the conference finals for a second year in a row. We will see how those two predictions pan out, or really all my predictions, because I said the Warriors-Grizzlies was wrapped. Uh, Bucks-Celtics is probably going to go seven. I'm taking the Bucks in seven. And I said the Warriors were wrapped. They'll, they'll be wrapped in, in five. Regardless if Jabra Morant comes back or not, I think the Warriors win. Take that series four to one. Bucks in seven. Uh, Heat in seven. And Suns in six. Those are my final predictions. And we will see if I'm right next week. But for this week, that will do it for this episode of From My Point of View. Thank you all for listening. Uh, if you haven't listened yet, the Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness review is out. You can go listen to that if you are now finished with this episode. Uh, so go check that out. Great movie. I really liked it a lot. Um, so thank you all for listening. I appreciate you as always. Have a great weekend. And I'll talk to you all next Wednesday.